0: Thanks for listening to Summit PA Sermon Audio, weekly teaching from the Summit Church in Indiana, Pennsylvania. SummitPA.church, every life made different. A few weeks ago, I guess the end of January, we started a series called "Identity," And the series is all about the lies that we believe that undermine our identity in Christ Jesus. Uh, the things that, that we believe that keep us from doing. What God wants us to do and keep us from being who God wants us to be. And the five lies that we've walked through were outlined by a pastor and a theologian named Henry Nowen. And Henry Nowen has these five lies that we've gone through. Uh, Week one was, I am what I have. Week two was, I am what I do. Week three is, uh, I am what other people say or think of me. Week four was, I am nothing less than my best moment. And today we're going to finish up the series with the statement, I am nothing more than my worst moment. Really what we're talking about today is shame. Um, Shame is interesting because a lot of people don't think they deal with shame, but when we get into the, the heart of our message today, I think the Holy Spirit might start convicting you about some areas. There might be some things in your life that you realize, hey, this response in my life is really a response to shame that I feel over something I did or something that was done to me maybe years ago. Um, and, and shame has a powerful hold in our culture. Um, it, it is amazing how powerfully shame can keep us in place and prevent us from moving forward into our true identity. Um, it is an epidemic in our world, and I think it's the source of so much of the brokenness we see uh, inside the church and outside the church as well. Uh, shame is just simply the, the painful experience of believing that that we're flawed, and because we're flawed, we're unworthy of connection, love, or belonging. Um, shame is a focus on self and guilt is a focus on behavior. So guilt says, I did something stupid. Shame says, I am stupid. Uh, guilt is saying, man, I missed all the shots in my game. I should have practiced more. Shame says, I missed all the shots in my game. I'm a failure. And these are two very distinct ways that we can approach life. But we get to tell ourselves the story of of. Uh, what we're walking through, and we get to tell ourselves the story of our suffering. Uh, we get to decide how we filter that, what that looks like. And guilt is all about our behavior, but shame is all about our identity. One of the interesting things about shame, from a psychological perspective, uh, shame is, it correlates with behaviors like addiction, depression, violence, aggression, bullying, suicide, eating disorders— All of these things have strong corollaries to shame. And it's important for us to understand this in the church especially, that that shame is something that God does not want us to live in and walk through. Uh, He wants us to be free of shame. And my prayer for you today, for those of you that are here in the room and those of you that are watching online, is that that at the conclusion of our worship experience today, when we're done here today, shame will be done in your life. That, That you will allow God to break the chains of shame in your life and you're never going to pick those up again. That the things that have happened to you, the things that you've done, the things that you hope no one ever finds out about, you're going to leave them at the front of this room symbolically uh, in the hands of Jesus and he is going to free you today. I truly, truly believe that. Shame has a long history. It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, we believe that, that God created the heaven and the earth, that Genesis 1, he laid everything out, right? It was good. Genesis 2, he makes woman. And at the end of Genesis 2, we see this beautiful passage where, uh, where Adam and Eve are together. And it says in Genesis 2, 25, Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. They were naked and unashamed. That's how some translations put it. And the thing that's beautiful about this verse is the fact that... Um, they literally had nowhere to hide, and they felt no shame. They were totally vulnerable, and yet they had no shame. And one of the reasons, I believe, is because they were totally known, but yet they were totally loved. And that is a, a hard thing to come by in the world we live in today, because that, that, we have this fear that if people really know us, they won't really love us. If they really know who we are... That they're not going to love us. Because if they knew what I've done, if they know what I, I've been a part of, if they know what's happened to me, they're not going to love me. And they can say they will, but they won't. I know. And in this moment in the garden, they were totally vulnerable and they were totally known, and yet they were totally loved. They were naked and unashamed. Now, if you go forward into chapter three, chapter three picks up and th- Satan comes in the form of a snake, a serpent, to Eve, and Adam is there, and he tempts her, tempts them, actually. He is there with them, so Eve gets the bad rep, but Adam was there too. So he, he speaks to them and says, hey, did God really say? And he starts questioning the authority of God and the goodness of God. And so they, they take the fruit that they were not supposed to eat from in the garden, and they eat it. They disobey God. They, they rebel against his commands. And Genesis 3, 7 says, at that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. So what happens is they, they disobey, they rebel against God's command, they partake of the fruit, and as soon as they did, instantaneously, they recognize their nakedness. In that moment, they felt shame. Um... Our English word, shame, it's derived from an, uh, an old Germanic word, uh, and the Germanic word means to cover up or to cover. I, I don't know about you, if, if I do something embarrassing, what is one of the first things you do? You, you cover up, you go, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that. Oh, right? There's a natural inclination to cover our face, to oh. And that is a natural response in human beings. Why? We feel shame and we want to cover up. We want to protect. We want to guard. And Adam and Eve have the same natural response. They feel shame. What do they do? They cover up. They go, oh my gosh. There's a problem. I am an issue. I'm a problem. I've got to cover up my issue. I've got to make sure nobody sees who I really am. In, in the Hebrew the the word for shame is boosh, and it's used 109 times in the Old Testament. 82 of those 109 times, it's used as shame or ashamed or shamed, one of these versions, but the rest almost all the rest of the times it's used as confound or confuse, which is interesting to me. Because when you look at the the Hebrew, I mean the Greek word for shame that's used throughout the New Testament. It's a word that's, uh, in the Greek, it's ahiskune, ahiskune is a hiskune, and a hiskune is a noun, and it means the confusion of one who is ashamed of anything, a sense of shame, the ignominy, the disgrace, the dishonor, a thing to be ashamed of. Now, I want to concentrate on this first definition, the confusion of one who is ashamed. And what we see from the Greek version of this and the Hebrew version of this is that when shame begins to come into our lives, confusion follows with it. That there's a sense of confusion. See, when Adam and Eve, they, they partook of the fruit, they rebelled against God, shame came in and there was confusion. I, I knew this, but now I feel this. This is what I believed and now this is what I feel. How do I reconcile? This is confusion. Here's what God said. Here's what happened. Here's what I feel. And you're trying to put these pieces together and there's confusion. And this confusion ultimately leads us to shame. There's a difference between conviction and shame. The Holy Spirit brings conviction. The Holy Spirit brings conviction to our lives so that he can reconcile us to God. The Holy Spirit will convict us so he can go, hey, you're you're heading in the wrong direction and bring us in the right direction. Shame is not like that. Shame drives us from God. Conviction draws us to God. Shame drives us from God. Shame ultimately alienates us from God. It drives wedges in relationships, but it ultimately drives a wedge in our relationship with God. We see this with Adam and Eve. They had shame. And even though they'd walked with God in the garden, they knew him intimately, face to face. In that moment, their shame drove them to hide from God, to cover themselves, to say, we don't want you to see who we really are. And that's not how God wants us to live. Unfortunately, some of you have had a horrible moment in your life and now that horrible moment has you. You made a horrible decision that you regret and that brings shame into your life and now that horrible decision has you. You were the victim of abuse that maybe nobody else knows about except you and your abuser. But now that moment has you. And that's who you are. And your heart tells you that you are nothing more than your worst moment. And I want you to know that is not the case. That's not who you are. That's not who God created you to be. He's got a better plan for you than that. Jesus didn't come to earth just to save you from hell. He came to set you free from shame as well. Shame can be a cultural thing. We see in the book of Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king of Babylon, and uh, Nehemiah had been exiled out of Judah into Babylon, and there was still a remnant of people in Judah, in Jerusalem, uh, but he had been gone, uh, hadn't really heard about it, and in the beginning of the book of Nehemiah, some friends of his come back from Jerusalem. They had gone to Jerusalem, they come back, and he inquires about it. And so in Nehemiah chapter one, verse three, he says, and they said to me, so he says, what's going on in Jerusalem? And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And this is his response. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. See, shame is not just something that an individual can carry. Shame is something that a culture can carry. Shame is something that a group of people can carry together. And and it ultimately defines us because this group of people said, Hey, we are failures. Our kingdom was taken over. Our, our, Our walls are trashed. Our gates are burned. We have no identity other than we failed. We are nothing more than our worst moment." Collectively, there was shame because of this. And Nehemiah doesn't say, well, you reap what you sow. Well, you made your bed. What does he do? He weeps. He mourns for days. And then he fasts and prays. His heart hurts for his people. His heart hurts for their their the shame that they're walking through. And he's praying, God, do something about that. What we ultimately see is not only does God do something, he uses Nehemiah to do something about it. And I'm telling you, the church in America, the big C church, we have to stop saying, hey, the stuff that's going on in our culture, that's their problem. You made your bed. And I believe the church needs to start praying for the culture. That we need to to weep and mourn for the shame in our culture. That that we need to to fast and pray and say, God, do something about that. Break the power of shame in the world we live in today. Psalm 34 4 says this I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look at him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. I love that. Those that look at him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. One of the things I know is that if our eyes are fixed on our shameful moment, the thing we hope nobody finds out about or knows about, then it makes it real difficult for us to fix our eyes on Jesus. We, we can't look at both. Um, last week, Abby, my oldest daughter, we were going down to Blairsville to our new Summit Blairsville location, and uh, we were going down 119, and I was in the passenger seat. She was driving, and I was looking at my phone, and because uh, I don't want to harass her about her driving, and uh, and so I was looking down. I didn't. I wasn't like death gripped on everything. I promise. Um, so I was looking at my phone, and she said, uh, "Dad," and I go, "Yeah, baby," and she said. Uh, The truck behind me is smoking and it's pulling over. And I looked, and it was quite a ways back there, and I looked over and she was still looking in the rearview mirror and I go, hey, do me a favor. Why don't you look out the front window instead of the back window? (laughs) Like, I'm more concerned about the direction you're going instead of what happened behind you, you know? And what I was saying is you can only look one place, so make sure your eyes are looking at the right place. And for us as believers, we can only look one place, so make sure your eyes are fixed to the right place. If our eyes are looking at our shame, we're looking at our worst moment, then we cannot be looking at Jesus. And if we are looking at Jesus, what happens is we are radiant and we are free from shame. But the problem is our eyes get fixed on our shame. That's who we are. That's the the identity that we're saddled with. And that's not what God wants for us. Romans chapter 8. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 10, verse 8 says this. Paul's talking to the Roman church, and he said, what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. And then parenthetically, it says, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Listen to this. This is a verse, if you've been around Summit, you've heard this a few times. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Verse 11 for Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So obviously, we read everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That's important. We, we put our faith and our hope in Jesus, and we will not be shamed when we do that. When we fix our eyes on him, we might have moments of regret, moments that that we wish hadn't happened, but we're not going to walk in shame. That's not our identity. But let, let me help you with this part. This part might not have mattered to you very much, but verse 12 says, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all. He bestows his riches. On all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So let me explain this to you. What it says is Paul's writing to the Romans, and, and it's a group of Gentiles, non-Jewish people. Paul is writing from a Jewish Roman perspective. He's a Roman citizen, Jewish heritage, and so he's writing to them, and he understands these two worlds well, and, and he's writing to them and helping them understand. Jews commonly would say, "Hey, uh, you can be a Christian, I guess, but like it's better to be Jewish." and go through the rituals and all the traditions. And what Paul is saying to them is this, hey, there are no second-class citizens in the economy of heaven. See, in the economy of heaven, you might look and go, well, I'm I'm just a Gentile, so I'm not as important as the Jewish people that are part of our group. And Paul goes, no, 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 no. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are a new creation. If you're in Christ Jesus, there are no second-class citizens. There are not the haves and the have-nots. We are all on a level playing field. So there is no Jew or Greek in Christ Jesus. We're all saved by the same blood of Jesus. We all experience the same hope, the same love of Christ in Christ Jesus. And some of us come to churches and we go, well, I mean, I can come here and I know God's got to love me technically, but God doesn't love me as much as he loves them. God doesn't love me as much as he loves Mel. He's on stage, he's preaching. Clearly God loves him more. And even though we don't deal with Jew or Greek in our culture, we still have this this idea of a hierarchy where there are people that are more loved by God than others. And I want you to hear this. No matter what you have done, no matter what you have been through, no matter what has been done to you, there's nothing you could do to make God not love you. You are loved deeply by God. He cares for you, he cares about you. Not because he has to, because he wants to. He loves you passionately. Christ has done the work for us. There's a, if I could call her an expert on shame, uh, her name's Brene Brown. And uh, she, to the best of my knowledge, I don't believe she is a a, a believer, a a Christian, but she could be. Um, But Brene Brown has written a number of books um, about authenticity and shame. Uh, She's got a TED Talk on shame that has, I don't know, eight million views or something like that. Um, but, But she has done extensive research in how shame affects us, and she says this, shame corrodes the very part of us that believes that we are capable of change. So the part of us that hopes for something more, hopes for something better, hopes for things to be different, it's corroded, it's eroded by shame in our lives. Shame breaks, shame breaks us down to the place that we don't believe life could be any better. And part of the problem is the worldview that we're the ones that change ourselves because none of us are capable of changing ourselves. There are things we can do to, to improve our lives perhaps, but at the end of the day, the only one who can get us out of a pit of shame is Christ Jesus. And I'm so grateful the verse we just read indicates to us that he is the one who's done the work. He's the one who's done the effort. He has fought the battle. That we don't have to figure out how do I break the power of shame in my life. He has done that for us. All we have to do is submit our hearts to him and trust him. There's a verse uh, that I love so much. And it's from Psalm, uh, Psalm chapter 139, verse 17. It says this. Listen to how the psalmist responds to God. This is what he says. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And I wake up, you're still with me. The psalmist is just simply saying, God, you think about me so much, there's no equivalent. There's no way I can wrap my mind around, understand how much you think about me. He said, even if I could count the grains of sand, That wouldn't equal how much you think about me. That's how much God has you on his mind. That's how much he thinks about you. God can't stop thinking about you. He loves you that much. He's crazy about you. I love the the last part of verse 18. It says "And when I wake up, You're still with me. When I wake up, you're still there. My girls, when they were younger and they would have a sleepover, they would go to somebody's house. It wasn't uncommon. A few times I would get a phone call or a text message in the middle of the night. Daddy, can you come get me? Is everything okay? Yeah, I just wanna come home. Go pick them up and I would say something like, well, sorry, she just wasn't feeling good okay, no problem, and I'm admitting to you that I lied to some people because what I didn't want to say is, your house has a really creepy vibe, and she was uncomfortable, didn't want to sleep there overnight. (laughs) You're good enough to hang out with, but not enough to, to sleep in a room with. So she was just uncomfortable being there, right? And some of us think that's how God views us. That God goes, hey, you're good enough to spend some time with, but I don't want to spend that much time with you. Yeah, I like you, but I, you're kind of weirding me out, so I need some space, right? But Do you know what the psalmist says? When I wake up, you're still there. And he's not there because he's trying to make us feel better. Like, he, he's enduring us so that he can make us, because he doesn't want to say, it's kind of creepy, Right? No, 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 he's not being polite. God's there because he wants to be there. He's there because he wants to be with you. The psalmist says, God, I know that, I see that. You can't stop thinking about me. You want to be with me. God, I acknowledge that. That's the God we serve. So if you're sitting here and you still are thinking, that's great for somebody, that's not good for me though because you don't know my story, Mel. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've been through. Because God couldn't love me. He couldn't find value in me. So let me walk real quickly through this. Four things that determine value. Some of this is basic uh, economics. So there are applications for us, though. So four things that determine value. Number one, supply and demand. Supply and demand. If there is very little of something, and there is a high demand for the very little something, then that something's gonna be worth more, right? Right? Conversely, if there is a million things and nobody really wants it, it depresses the value of that thing. I'll give you an example of that. Um, For several years in my childhood, all I got for Christmas and birthday were baseball cards. And I'm not talking about a few. Um, A few years ago, I got rid of a significant amount of my baseball cards. And I had about, I don't know, 70,000 baseball cards probably. (laughs) <laughs> and the depressing part was when I decided I was ready to get rid of them, and I took them to a baseball card shop, and I said, hey, give me an idea. What do you think? And he, he, he went through them, and he was like, ah, I'm good. Like, you don't want to give me any offer for them? He was like, I mean, there's some in your collection, yeah, but he said, by and large, man, you were collecting when they just produced so much of it. And I was like, some of it's limited. And he was like, yeah, it's limited to how many they could sell. And I was like, oh, it's not worth anything because they made so many. I was like, Ken Griffey Jr., rookie. And he was like, yeah, they made 9 million of those. So they distributed them to people like as they were born. You get one, right? Like that's how it felt. So because there's so many of them, they're not worth anything. So now I've got to find out how I'm going to retire, I guess, because I thought my baseball card collection was going to do it for me. I gotta come up with other plans, why? Because there's a million of them and everybody's got what they want, there's not a demand. If if you were a collectible, I could say that you are a one of one. There is none other like you. Even if you are a twin, there's none like you. Because even twins are dramatically different. If you've got multiple children, you understand that even if they're similar in some ways, they're dramatically different in others, right? There's no one like you. In all of history on planet Earth, there has never been and there would never be someone just like you. In fact, we're going to see in a minute that I believe that there are things that God has plans for you to do that no one else can do. That it's destined for you to do. That you have to step into that. And if you don't, no one else will. So the supply is limited because you're a one of one. But I would tell you the demand is high. There's a demand from our culture that says you have to do certain things, be certain ways, give this, whatever it might be. But, but in the spiritual, there's a demand on you as well. Uh, in Luke chapter 22, Jesus finishes the Last Supper with his disciples. And I can imagine that he, he finishes up and people start kind of talking. And he leans over to Peter and he says, hey, Peter, Satan wants you because he wants to sift you like wheat. He's trying to kill you. But I want you to know something, Peter. I'm praying for you. That's pretty great. Jesus is praying for Peter, right? But he says, there's a demand for you. And Satan wants you, but I want you to know something. I want you to. Satan wants every single one of you. All of you in this room, all of you watching online, Satan is out to get you. And if he can't kill you, He's gonna get you stuck in shame. It's gonna prevent you from moving forward. There's a demand on you, and you are one of one. Second thing is this, craftsmanship. How well something is constructed and built helps determine its value. Um, No matter who the manufacturer is, if it's well-made, it's gonna have more value than something that is not well-made. There's a store, it's fairly prominent, throughout different parts of the United States, and we don't have one in in the eastern part of Pittsburgh, but there's one on the west side of Pittsburgh over near the airport. Has anybody ever been to a store called Ikea? Ikea, a few of you have. Speaking of shame, you could see it when some of the people raise their hands, oh yeah, I've been to Ikea. Can't believe I've been to Ikea. So Ikea, here's the thing, it's a Swedish company. They produce sleek furniture. It's modern looking, it looks cool, and it's cheap. And let me help you with something. The reason it's cheap is so that you can replace it every three months. (laughs) Because that's about how long it feels like it will last. Once you get it, because what happens is you go and you pick out this couch. You're like, oh, this couch looks great. I'll buy the couch. And then you go to pick it up, and they give it to you, and it's in a box this big, right? And you get it home, and you unpack, and you dump everything out, and these pieces, 10 million pieces go everywhere. And if you can construct this couch, and your marriage is still intact by the time you get finished with it, (laughs) you finish the couch, you're like, yes, it's perfect, I love it. And you sit on it and you can do that for about 90 days. And then the couch starts getting really wonky. Do you know why? Because you paid $50 for the couch, right? You put it together in your living room. It is not well constructed and crafted. Therefore, it's probably not very valuable. Now, this is a gross overstatement about Ikea. Um, I had youth rooms when I was a youth pastor that was filled with Ikea furniture because like I said, it was cheap. Um, the reality is some of us look at ourselves in the spiritual like we're Ikea we go well it's fine I mean I'm okay but I know that I'm not that valuable I know that I'm not that, that important I mean Mel's important he's on stage but I'm not important because and you're wrong you're wrong the reason I know you're wrong is because of the craftsmanship Psalm 139 13 the psalmist says this You made all the delicate inner parts of my body. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. The English Standard Version says this, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. He says, wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. See, when we degrade our own value, we're questioning the workmanship of God. And one of the things that's heartbreaking to me about this passage is in the English Standard Version, it says, my soul knows it very well. And the reality is there's so many people that they know it. They can say, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, We're all beautiful. I get it. Yeah, I'm beautiful. But their soul doesn't know it very well. They say the right things, but in their heart they go, but that's not me. I'm sure some people are fearfully and wonderfully made, but not me. Because I know me. I know what I've done. I know my thoughts. I know what I've been through. And that's not me. See, what's happened is shame has taken root in our heart and we begin to question, we begin to wonder. We have doubts about who God is and who we are. And in the society we live in today, there are so many questions. There's so much confusion (laughs) about sexuality. Um, We have very specific ideas of what a man should look like and a woman should look like. A man's supposed to think like this and be like this and act like this. And women are supposed to think like this and be like this and act like this. And if we don't fit into those roles, those specific roles, then immediately we're told something's wrong with you. And let me, let me give you an example of that. Um, the service isn't done yet. Yet. But I wouldn't be shocked if before this service is over with, I shed a tear or two. If you're new to Summit, once in a while I'll cry a little bit on stage. It is not uncommon for me to shed a tear or two from stage. And because... Because I'm passionate about things like lost people, hurting people, people who are marginalized. I'm passionate about seeing God work in people's lives. I'm passionate about my family. So when I talk about things like that, it's not uncommon for me to cry. And I don't make any apologies for that. I'm not ashamed of that at all. But one of the things that's so interesting to me is that it's not uncommon for me to have somebody come and kind of make a passive statement to me about my tears. And the implication is that I'm not as masculine as I would be if I didn't cry. Now, that doesn't bother me. But what's interesting to me is, in this one way, people are saying, hey, this is what a man looks like, and a man doesn't cry. A man's not allowed to show any emotions publicly unless it's anger. That's the only acceptable emotion for a man to show, right? That's what men do. Men are strong and aggressive, and they'll fight, but men do not cry publicly. So whenever somebody like me cries publicly, it it makes somebody go, oh, no, 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 you don't fit into this narrow view of what a man does. Does that make sense? And if if I allowed it to, it would be easy for me to go, well, maybe something's wrong with me. Maybe I'm broken. (laughs) I didn't say this in the other services. I actually had a lady from our church come to me and go, hey, something's wrong with you because you cry so much. I was like, okay, what's your suggestion? And she said, you need more vitamin D. I've got this, uh, I think it was an essential oil or something. I was like, nah, pass, pass, I'm good, right? So what happens? We go, I'm broken. Something's wrong with me. There's an issue with me. Then shame comes in. We begin to question and... We see this in the world we live in today. We see this over and over and over and over, and I want you to know something. What the word of God makes very clear to me is that we don't have to worry about being exactly what our culture, our broken culture says we should be, or think exactly the way the broken culture says we should act. Um, Just because I cry publicly doesn't mean I'm less masculine. Just because a woman likes sports doesn't mean she's less feminine. All it means is we don't fit into the cultural norms. And so what we need to do is say, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My soul knows that very well. I'm not worried if people think I'm less than because I cry publicly. I'm okay with that. And by the way, I don't need emails or letters later telling me I'm manly, I promise, I'm okay. (laughs) But it's heartbreaking to me to see people who struggle with things like that confusion, questioning the shame because they feel like they're less than because culture tells them they are. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Third thing, real quickly, the identity of the creator. Psalm 119.73 says, you made me, you created me, talking to God. Ephesians 2 says this, for by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it's a gift from God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We read this verse last week. I want to tie it in so that you see the context. He goes on to say in verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship, his craftsmanship. He made us. Therefore, we have value. There was a lady um, named Terry Horton. Terry Horton lived in San Bernardino, California, in 1987, she was in an um, accident and she was no longer able to work. She had to retire from truck driving. And so Terry took up her hobby. Her favorite hobby was uh, looking for junk. Uh, she would go to garage sales. She would go to uh, thrift shops. Wherever she could find a deal, a bargain, she would look for it. And she goes to the... Th- this thrift shop in San Bernardino, called Dots Spot Thrift. And she goes into Dots and she's walking around through there and Terry sees this gigantic canvas over in the corner. And it's what she described as a modern piece nightmare. Monstrosity is what she said. So she went over to it and she looked at it and she immediately thought about her friend who loved Norman Rockwell paintings. And she thought, I'm gonna buy this piece of art for my friend as a joke, as a gag gift. So she gets this canvas, she goes to the counter and she asks the girl, how much for this artwork? And the girl says, $8. Uh, and the lady goes, Terry says, I love my friend but not that much. I'm not paying $8 for this, how about five? The girl accepts, she gives her $5 for the artwork. She takes it over to her friend's house. She leans it up outside. Her friend comes out, they have a big laugh at it and they decide, we're gonna throw darts at this in a little bit, we're gonna go get darts and throw it and it'll be, it'll be hilarious. They never got around to it and when Terry finished her conversation, she was gonna help her get the artwork in the house, but it wouldn't fit in the door, the canvas is so big. So Terry just took it home, she put it in her garage, and a few years later, she decided to have a garage sale. She sets it out, and in the course of the garage sale, a man approaches her, and he said, hey, I was driving by, and I'm an art professor at this local college, and he said, I've been looking at this piece, and he said, I think it's Jackson Pollock. And the girl, Terry says, Who the blank is Jackson Pollock? She didn't say blank by the way. I inserted that for your benefit. (laughs) She has no idea who this guy is. She just knows she's got this gigantic canvas. So they begin doing some looking, and all the experts are saying this is not a Jackson Pollock. We have no history. Uh, We don't know who owned it before. We don't have any history on where this came from. It's not a Jackson Pollock. But she was convinced, and this art professor thought it was, and they began doing forensic uh, studies on it. And what they found is one thumbprint on the back of the canvas that matched Jackson Pollock. Come to find out it, it was indeed a Jackson Pollock painting. It was interesting because the painting that she paid $5 for, that she refused to pay $8 for, now she found out who did the artwork and she realized its true value. She actually turned down $9 million cash for it before she passed away in 2019. She, she wanted at least $50 million for it and she never got that amount. But she held out knowing who the artist was. She knew who the creator was. Because of that, she knew how much the creation was worth. See, so many of us feel like we are some throwaway thrift shop painting, and I want you to know something. You are a masterpiece, not because of you, but because of who created you. You are valuable because of who your creator is. Your creator induced the creation with value. You're valuable because the identity of the creator. The fourth thing is this, the price paid. Something is only worth what someone will pay for it. Did you know that? It doesn't matter what estimated values are. It only matters what somebody will actually pay. That's why Terry never got 50 million or 100 million dollars for her artwork. It's because nobody would pay that for it. She had a $9 million offer that she turned down. So if I was talking to Terry today, and she passed away in 2019, but if I was talking to her today, I would say, hey, Terry, your artwork's not worth $100 million or $140 million. It's not worth $50 million. It's worth $9 million because that's what somebody would actually pay for it, which is still pretty good because she paid $5 for it, right? But this is the actual value, what someone would pay for it. So my question to you is, what are you worth? Now this should be easy, right? We're in church. You should know the answer to this. And if you don't, I'm gonna help you with it. This is that moment like in, in Sunday school growing up or in kids' church where they would go, hey kids, who died for our sins? And we go, Jesus, yay, right? So let me help you, what are you worth? Well, according to scripture, you're worth the blood of Christ. That's the price paid. No matter what condition you are found in, no matter what kind of baggage you have, no matter what you've been through, no matter what you've done, even though they couldn't trace the history of this Jackson Pollock, they knew who the creator was. They knew the price that would be paid for it. And I'm telling you, no matter what your history says about you, your creator says you are worth the blood of his son. And when we say we are worth less than that, we are degrading the value of the blood of Christ. If Jesus says you are worth it, you are worth it. Titus 2.14 says this, talking about Jesus. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us, to make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. He did this to make us his very own people. We are not our own. We're bought with a price. That price was a high price. Blood of the Lamb. Paid for our freedom. Ephesians 1, seven says this. Talking about God. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He willingly did that. Not because he owed us or I guess I'll do this for them. He wanted to. He loved you so much that he paid the price that he felt like you are worth. verse that I share often is Romans 5, 8. God shows his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners. So I want you to hear this. That moment of shame that you have parked yourself in That moment of shame that is is locked into your brain, that has captured you, that has become your identity, when that was happening, Christ saw that and loved you anyway. That was the moment that Christ said, they are worth dying for. They are lovable. They are beautiful in that moment. Not in your best day when you clean up and you come to church and you, you put on your fancy tennis shoes instead of your normal tennis shoes, whatever it is. You, you, not when you clean up, not when you look your best. At your worst, that's when Christ found you beautiful and lovely and worth dying for. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse three. Let me read this real quickly. I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. Uh, Paul's talking to the Corinthian church about the old covenant versus the new covenant. This is what he says. Since this new way, this new covenant, gives us so, uh, such confidence, we can be very bold. We're not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the people of Israel would not see the glory, even though it was destined to fade away. So Moses came, had, had a face-to-face encounter with the glory of God. And after this, his face glowed with the glory of God, and it made people nervous, so he put a veil over his face. And he kept the veil over his face, even when the glory faded, because he didn't want the people to know that the glory faded. There's there was some shame even associated with that, so he kept his face covered. It goes on to say, in verse 14, But the people's minds were hardened, and to this day, whenever the old covenant is being read, the same veil covers their minds, so they cannot understand the truth. And this veil can be removed only by believing in Christ. Yes, even today, when they read Moses' writing... Their hearts are covered with a veil, and they do not understand. Now this is talking about Jewish people, Hebrew people, who, uh, who don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So they look at the Old Testament with a lack of understanding. But what, what Paul is telling them is if they, they see who Christ is, they have a new level of understanding. So let me continue on. Verse 16, but whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us who have had the veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. Um, when we see clearly who Jesus is, and we understand who he is and what he's done, what he wants to do in our lives, that veil is lifted. The veil of understanding, uh, how we look at scripture, understand scripture. But I would say this, um, when we see who Christ really is, I think the veil of shame is lifted as well. At the beginning of this message, we talked about the word shame means to cover. That immediately that's what we do oh, we don't want God to see this, we don't want people to know this. If they knew, if they really knew, they wouldn't love me. And there's something powerful about being uncovered, about being vulnerable. Because God knows you anyway. I don't know what you're hiding. I don't know what I'm hiding. And what God wants for us is to be vulnerable with him, to be unveiled with him, to to be uncovered with him and to know that he will know us and love us anyway. That's what his heart is. He wants to uncover us, not to shame us, but to have intimacy with us. He he wants to restore that that relationship that was there in the garden where they were naked and unashamed. There was nothing to hide, but they knew they, they didn't need to hide anything because they were loved in spite of their flaws. That's what God wants for us. That's what he wants for you. The terrifying thing is he doesn't just want that with him. James 5.16 says this. Confess your sins to each other. What? I thought we just confess to God. Well, yeah, we, we confess to God for absolution. He's the one who forgives. We don't confess our sins to find forgiveness from people. Listen as it goes on. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. So we, we confess our sins. We're vulnerable with our, our, the people that we can trust. We go to them and, and, and forgive the way I'm saying this. We go to them naked and we go, here's who I am uncovered. Here's what I've been through. Here's what's happened to me. Let me tell you about something I did that I've got so much shame about. And what happens is, it says, and they will pray with you. And do you know what it says next? It's amazing, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. One of the problems is we don't find healing because we're unwilling to confess. We're unwilling to go and be vulnerable. We're unwilling to go and say, here's what I've done. I gotta be honest with somebody. Here's what's happened to me. And I'm carrying this shame and I just need to tell somebody. The healing is on the other side of of authenticity and and intimacy if we'll just trust the Lord because shame flourishes in secrecy, silence, and judgment. Your shame says, don't tell them because if you do, they won't love you. They won't accept you. I want you to hear this. This is a a shame-free zone. I might not agree with you. I might not agree with the choices you make. I might not agree with the things you do, but I'm gonna love you in spite of that. Just because you've been the victim of something doesn't mean you're disqualified from being loved by us or by God. Just because you've done something doesn't mean you're disqualified from being loved by us or by God. But there's something powerful and healing about being honest and saying, let me me tell you. And this doesn't mean you tell everybody. It doesn't mean you tell everybody all your dirty secrets, but what it means is we're just gonna be vulnerable. We're gonna be unveiled, uncovered, and say, I need to be honest And healing will follow that. See, my prayer this week has been, God, break the power of the lie. I'm nothing more than my worst moment. Because over and over and over and over, we've believed this lie. That that is who we are. And I want you to know something. In Christ Jesus, you are so much more than that. If you're here today and maybe... um, Maybe you know you're struggling with shame to some degree or another, but you've never surrendered your life to Christ. Um, Freedom from shame begins with relationship with Jesus. So I wanna start there. Maybe you're here and you say, "Mel, I'm a Christian, but man, what you were talking about today, some stuff really hit home for me and I'm dealing with some shame about some things I've done, some things that have been done to me, Things I've been through, things I've seen, whatever it is. Maybe it's things you haven't done but you think you should have. Feel like the Holy Spirit just dropped this in my heart for somebody. There's a parent here has grown children and you feel shame because of what you didn't do. I want you to know there's healing for you from that. You're not a failure. You don't have to walk in that. So I'm telling you today, if you say, Mom, I'm a Christian, I know I'm going to heaven, but man, I'm dealing with shame. God's got more for you than that. God's gonna set you free today if if you'll trust him, if you'll come to him unveiled, uncovered, honest, and let him heal you, he will. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you. for loving us, thank you for being so good to us. I just pray your blessing. In these next few moments, speak life into us. Help us, to, uh, help us to see you for who you really are so that we can see ourselves for who we really are. I pray in the name of Jesus that shame would be broken in this place, that, that people would walk out of here with heads held high, walking in freedom that they've never experienced before that we would understand clearly that we are are so much more than our worst moment. That is not who we are. God, forgive us for cheapening the blood of Jesus that, that we think we are not that valuable. God, forgive us for demeaning our maker. God, help us not be confused about who we are in you. God, restore our hearts. Make us right with you. God, I pray for those that are here that don't know you. Let today be the day. They surrender everything. They they acknowledge your lordship. They submit themselves to you as king. God, I pray that they would fix their eyes on you. And They would be radiant. That there would be no shame when we do that. So God, minister in them. God, I pray for those that are here that are Christians. They're going to heaven, but They're bogged down by shame in their lives. God, I just pray healing and wholeness in them. I pray that they would confess their sins one to another. They would be honest and vulnerable and they would find healing in that as they are prayed for in godly community. God, I pray even right now as people are battling how to respond and what to do. God, I pray that you would break shame even in that moment. When people come forward, there would be no shame in that, God. You would just minister in their hearts. So God, have your way in us over these next few moments. Nobody looking around. If you're here today and you'd say, Mel, I'm not really in relationship with Jesus, but I know I need to be. I'm not really walking with God, but I know I need to be. And, um, And today I want to acknowledge him as king. I want to submit to his lordship in my life. I want to say a simple prayer with you. And so if you're here and you'd say, Mel, I want to make Jesus Lord of my life. I want to pray that prayer with you. I want to be included in that prayer. Would you slip your hand up real high where I can see it? Yeah, thank you on my right. Who else would join? Yeah, up in the balcony, I see you. Praise God. Yeah, I see another hand up in the balcony. Thank you. Who else would join these and say, Mel, pray for me? Yeah, thank you on my left. I see you. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Just a few more seconds. Anyone else want to join these? All right. Yeah, thank you on my right, sir. I'd like every person in this place to pray this prayer with me out loud, whether you raise your hand or not. We read this verse today in Romans. It says, if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus, Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So I want you to pray this prayer with me out loud, but I don't want you to mean it from your heart, from the core of who you are. So pray this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me so much that you gave your son to pay the price for my sins on the cross. Today, I am a new creation. The old is gone. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for loving me. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Come on, let's give God a round of applause this morning. Listen, if you prayed that prayer and you meant it, whether you raised your hand or not, scripture tells us that you're a new creation. And we would love to help you take the next step in your faith journey. So if you prayed that prayer, uh, simply take a moment and uh, text Summit PA to the number nine four zero 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 on your cell phone or mobile device Or you can take the card out of the seat back in front of you that says salvation. If you would, take it over to our information center. Give it to them. They're going to give you a Bible and they're going to help you take the next step in your faith journey. So again, thank you for that. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say a final prayer while I'm praying that prayer. I'm going to invite our team to come forward. Our staff, some of our prayer team are going to join us here. And uh, and this is what I want to do. If you're here and you know that this message was for you. There's some things in your heart going on right now. I want to challenge you. Do not leave here without letting somebody pray for you. I I truly believe that healing is going to be found when you take a step of faith and step out and simply come up here and let somebody pray with you. Because there's something powerful about saying, hey, here's what's going on. You don't have to share everything. But hey, here's what I feel like God is doing and I just need somebody to pray with me healing is on the other side of that. So don't let pride keep you from stepping out and coming forward and and finding healing there. So I'm going to pray a final prayer. Our team is going to be here when I finish, and then I'm going to be dismissing you. And as we're dismissed, if you would like prayer, please come forward for that. So let me pray for you. Lord, thank you so much for being so good to us. Thank you for paying the price for us in the, the form of the blood of Christ. Thank you for that. Thank you that we have value, not because of who we are, but because of who you are. Thank you that we have value because we are your craftsmanship. Thank you that we have value because the price paid for us. Thank you for all you've done for us. We acknowledge today that, that we can't escape shame on our own, but you have done the work for us. So God, we're asking you to do the work in us today. I pray as we walk out of this place, we would walk in freedom in the name of Jesus. I pray that we would walk out of here with boldness in the name of Jesus. And I pray that you would be glorified for it. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all you've done and all you're going to do. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Guys, I love you more than you know. I'm so glad I get to be your pastor. God bless you. We'll see you next weekend.